0: In the first two seasons, the show featured guests from over 60 different countries, and will continue down that path, because it is imperative that we cherish the differences, and we can only do that by getting out and journeying into unknown frontiers, whether it be physically or simply through conversation, sharing lovely experiences, and saluting the tenacious and resilient guests. Really, really great episode for you today, with a wonderful guest, freelance trombonist from Boston. Our first trombonist, Victoria Garcia, joins the show. Victoria is a regular sub with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra, and has performed with the Boston Lyric Opera. She also performs regularly with regional orchestras such as the Vermont Symphony Orchestra, Boston Modern Orchestra Project, the Odyssey Opera, and Symphony New Hampshire. Along with her orchestral experience, Victoria's chamber experience includes being a member of the boston-based trombone quartet winners of the international trombone association trombone quartet competition in june of 2017. as the newest member of Seraph brass victoria has traveled nationally and internationally performing festivals and giving master classes victoria received her bachelor of music degree from the boston conservatory in 2014. since then she's remained in boston where she received her master of music degree in 2016 from the new england conservatory of music and besides performing she is also a certified Alexander Technique teacher and works in the administration as the Ensemble Coordinator at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. This it's a lot of fun chatting with Victoria. And on today's conversation, she shares with us why she first chose the trombone and how her mother wanted her to choose an atypical instrument. Victoria also shares her approach for mentally preparing for a performance. And lastly, Victoria talks about, Victoria discusses, her fitness journey, why it's important to her, and how it coincides with her career as a professional musician. Loved, loved new conversation with Victoria. Brilliant personality and incredibly talented musician. Excited for everyone to meet her. So let's go ahead and bring on American trombonist, Victoria Garcia, and let's learn. Do you remember the first time you picked up the trombone?
1: I do. Um, My mother, is actually one of my first musical influences. Uh, my mother, my both of my parents are musicians. They met in college. They went to they performed in college in Florida. And my mother was a tuba player. My father was a percussionist. So the back row crew. And he had a huge crush on my mother. Um, lo and behold, they got married. They had three daughters. And my mother, being a high school band director and a tuba player, um, being so involved in music, me and my sisters would just watch her um as we were growing up and with her tuba would always play around with her tuba and it came a day where i had to pick my instrument and i couldn't wait to play music but i was like i want to play the flute and my mother was like absolutely not you cannot stick an instrument that you can fit in your backpack and i was like well what other instruments can i possibly pick and of course my mother being a brass player she says you're going to you could pick the trombone you could pick the french horn And oddly enough, I was allowed to play the bassoon, which was a woodwind woodwind instrument, which only fit into the mold because not enough people play it. So my mother, being a band director, wanted her daughters to pick instruments that no one else picked in the band. So I ended up picking trombone. My middle sister ended up picking the euphonium, baritone. And my youngest sister ended up picking up the French horn, which a lot of women, when I was growing up, did Girls did not play those instruments. And my mother really was um, just growing up. My mom playing too, it was not something me and my sister saw as different, not saw as something unique. I only became aware that what I was doing was unique when I was actually in college. I never saw myself as being the only female trombone player in a section or the only female player in the low brass or whole brass section. I always just saw myself as another member of the orchestra. And it was until college that I realized, it dawned on me, I'm like, I am the only female brass player here. And I only started noticing that because a lot of men would point that out to me. And I'm like, I'm not blind, but why are you making a big deal out of it? Lo and behold, (laughs) to answer the question, my mother was my first influence because she really is the one who got me and my sisters into music. And my first, inst- my first time with the trombone, I was in fourth grade. And I remember my very first note on the instrument, it was in a really creepy basement of our elementary school. And I remember I couldn't, it was a Yamaha trombone. It was like just bent out of shape. It was ugly, but I was so excited to have this thing in my hands and carry this huge clunky case around. My first note was a D in fourth position. And I was like, th- and I remember it to this day, very clearly going home and practicing this note like 12 times in a row, making sure I could hit it.
0: Fascinating. My sister's a band director and she's actually plays the flute. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this so much. <laughs> you at age, did you have difficulty with the size?
1: No, that's the, you know, I think that's what's so cool is that little girls and little boys at the age of nine, they're really, honestly, they're not that much in height difference. So short arms are short arms. A fourth grade boy and a fourth grade girl are going to have the same difficulties reaching fifth, sixth and seventh positions. And I was very lucky enough to have a band teacher that was like, yeah, Victoria's going to play trombone. Let's help her play trombone. Did it, it didn't matter how small or how tall or how short or, you know, I was, it, my, my size did not pre- um, prevent me from picking an instrument or hinder me from picking an instrument. I just, I was very lucky when I think about my childhood that I was never hindered in a way I was always encouraged from all of my teachers and my family.
0: So once you started playing, what were some of the musical acts you were listening to or maybe other musicians that you aspired to be?
1: So growing up, I, you know, I wasn't, I just, I never had a goal in mind when I was playing Trimone as a kid, I just always wanted to be really good. I just always wanted to like be the best in the band. And I was, I would get awards every year, fourth grade, fifth grade, all the way to high school. I would get an award every single year for being like some kind of overachieving musician monster or whatever. And, um, so I never had a goal of, I wanted to be in an orchestra. It's just, I started doing more and more music. My mother being very involved in the music community and being a high school director knew that in order for me to get better and better, I had to, let's say do auditions. I had to do festivals. I had to do competitions. And, um, so being exposed to that, I never had like a goal in mind. I would just have many goals along the way. And then all of a sudden it comes junior year of high school. And it didn't even, I didn't even question it. I knew I was going to go to college for music because I had been doing this my whole life up until this point. Uh, but that's when I realized, well, what is it that I want to do exactly in college? And I've been playing in youth symphony orchestras and stuff. And I was like, well, I really like orchestras. I really love orchestral playing or band playing. I thought that was great. Jazz, I did it because I wanted to be a well-rounded musician, but I did not like it. Um, and my first influences, besides my private teachers, um, the first big name artist that I, I knew and young trombone players always know is Joseph Alessi, who's the principal trombone player of the New York Phil. And I always had this dream. I was like, I'll go to Joliard and study with Joe Alessi. Now, I studied with some great, great trombone professors, though. And I've had the honor of uh, being a participant at Joe Alessi's seminar. So I did study with him for a short time. But my, he was my first major influences, and I would listen to his CDs, and I would like buy his books. and uh, like I was enamored by um, his playing, mainly because other people were like, his playing is amazing. I'm like, okay, his playing is amazing. <laughs> but then I came to that conclusion on my own.
0: <laughs> you attended the prestigious New England Conservatory of Music for your master's degree and Boston Conservatory for your undergrad. When you think back to those years, what are the first memories that come to mind?
1: Stress. <laughs> I think everybody, and if you focus on any particular subject when you go to college, I mean, every subject has its stressful moments. Uh, at Boston conservatory, I really learned how to be a well-rounded musician. I also learned the art of what it takes to be a freelance entrepreneurial musician. And at new England conservatory, um, I really learned how to be disciplined when it comes to performing professionally and really what it takes to get to the next level. Um, and I'm still even, I guess I'm six years out of college now, and I'm still reminded of all my, my six years and collective college knowledge of like what it is that I need to do to keep stepping up to that level. Um and I'm still not done learning. I still take lessons. I still study with some people. I still try to attend master classes, and I try to learn as much as I can still.
0: You mentioned discipline, and I know that follows into line of just the countless hours of repetition. So how did you push through the repetition when maybe there were times where you, that's it, I've had enough of those plateaus, basically?
1: Mm-hmm. It's It's difficult. A lot of the time, what I have to do is just go back to fundamentals go back to the basics um, if that means I have to do long tones or lip slurs uh, a lot of the time for me my plateaus happen when I've been overplaying and I can't make improvements because I'm, my muscles are physically exhausted kind of like someone who who's training too hard for a marathon or um, training too hard for like a weightlifting competition it's they're not giving themselves ample time of rest or time to reflect and then game plan for what they need to do moving forward and it's very easy to not re- um, to realize you're in that rut. It's not easy to realize you're in that rut. And a lot of the time when I'm starting to feel, this happened to me last night, uh, a lot of the time when I feel like, why do I feel like I'm not, I'm not at my best playing right now? That might not be the case. It just might be your brain might be a little bit stale <laughs> at the moment. So why don't we change things up? Why don't we try completely new rep that you're not even practicing? Why don't you just give it a shot make your mind creative make it work a little bit harder instead of being stuck in a square box of all right I need to do this this and this how about let's choose a creative path and and work on something completely different that'll get your brain firing
0: well in regards to rest day when I've talked to athletes often on a rest day there's two different schools of thought maybe it's do absolutely nothing and the other school of thought is let me do something different kind of like you mentioned as far as if they're a cyclist maybe they go for a run so for you on Mm -hmm. a rest day what's your mentality
1: so I'm I'm getting older in my in you know just in wisdom and in and, and age and when I was younger a rest day for me would just I'm not playing the horn. Uh, now I'm starting to realize, especially now that I'm now that COVID is over and my my career is is my schedule is being full again in performances, I'm starting to realize that rest day needs to be more about stretching, stretching those muscles. So if that means I have to play long tones or very low octave etudes just to, for a little bit, just to get the muscles nice and stretched and loose. Um, I'm still kind of game planning that a little bit because I'm starting to notice a change in my life of what I used to need versus what I'm going to need moving forward.
0: I love how involved you are mentally as far as performing. It seems like you're very introspective with that. So going into a performance, what are the mental steps you take to make sure you're in the right frame of mind?
1: I am someone who likes peace and solitude. Um, I have a lot of extroverted energy. I love to socialize when I'm in a room full of people. I know how to get people talking. I know how to make people comfortable. Um, But I'm also an introvert at heart. So in order for me to prepare for like a social thing or a performance, I need time to be alone. And so I'll I, when I come home from work, I'm home, I'm doing my own exercise. I'm cooking my own dinner. I have my thoughts to myself. Um, you know, even my husband knows, he goes, this is a big concert day for Vicki. I am not going to get in her way. I need her. I need to let her do her own thing. And I'm going to do as little talking as possible to at least help her stay on track. Um, and that's what I need before a performance. Uh, I need that, 30 minutes alone 20 to 30 minutes where I'm either in a practice room or I even put my earbuds on and I put it on silent mode just enough for me to just contain my thoughts Um, you know because sometimes self-talk can go rampant you know you can start thinking negatively or you think too preemptively about something and it starts consuming your whole process and so I need that just about 30 minute window of where I can just be alone in the practice room if that means I'm warming up with my instrument Or just having some peace and quiet that's how I can help get myself ready for a performance so that when I get on stage those voices aren't loud in my head and I could just focus on the music making looking at the conductor listening to my section and listening to the whole orchestra
0: I appreciate that from one introvert to another (laughs) one thing as well about was fitness and about how you like to do that by yourself and I know that you're very into fitness in any way has that helped you as a performer?
1: It has, but not in the conventional way. A lot of people are curious of me getting back. So I got in shape uh, mainly because when COVID happened, I had nowhere else to focus my energy. I wasn't performing. When I wasn't performing, I couldn't take auditions. I couldn't get ready professionally for my career. Everything was on hold for, it still is. It's coming back now, but everything was on hold. And I didn't know where to focus all of this energy to. And so I focused into fitness. Um, And I lost twenty four pounds from it, and I am still have I still have such a great relationship with nutrition and exercise because of those building blocks that I established. And a lot of people are always curious. Well, did it make you a better trombone player, or did it make you like mediocre or a worse trombone player? And to be honest, I think the only thing that it helped change for me was my self image, how I see myself in my concert attire. Because when I started gaining weight before the pandemic started, I noticed that my concert attire didn't look great. You don't wear your concert attire every day. So that's like a true assessment of like, something's not right. And then I finally am feeling really good in my concert clothes. And I, it, it makes me stand taller, makes me sit taller, makes me more confident in just how I present myself with my instrument versus, oh, my breathing's better. Oh, my posture's better. None of those things really affected how I play the trombone, but how I myself did.
0: How about on the flip side, as far as the progression that you've had as an artist and all the discipline, the countless hours and overcoming plateaus, did that help you in your fitness journey?
1: It did because I'm, I have a very aggressive mindset. So even on those days where I didn't want to exercise or I was too sore, or I claimed that I didn't have the time. I always found time to make trombone practice work, even if it was to go to the practice rooms at 1130 at night. I found myself doing the same thing with my exercise. I told myself no excuses. Um, And so vice versa, being very diligent and in my practice routine and in my musical life uh, was easy to go into exercise because I knew how to discipline myself. I knew how to tell myself, you don't have the option. You gotta go do it.
0: Throughout your career, you've played at some prestigious halls and some unforgettable locations. So as you look back on your career thus far, which are the halls that stand out or maybe the performances that you're the most proud?
1: I would have to say there was a performance that really stuck out for me. Um, i I've, yeah, I've had amazing experiences playing in a lot of like a lot of halls, and, and naturally, the one that sticks out to me the most is my performances with the Boston Symphony over at Symphony Hall, uh, which is only a four-minute walk from my apartment, so super convenient. Um, and the performance that stuck out to me the most, and the whole experience itself, was a performance that I had my first time playing with the Boston Symphony Orchestra in uh, October of 2018. And that performance stuck out to me. One, it was my first major call and I was playing a major symphony work. And it made me really emotional because a little bit of a backstory. uh, My grandfather uh, was very interested in me and my sister's musical careers growing up. And when I went to college, I was a freshman in college. He had passed away in April of 2011. And so he never got to see any of my recitals, none of my major performances. Uh, he never got to see um, really, really important moments in my life as a musician. And I remember when I was 16 years old, he told me, Victoria, he was a, he was a Cuban man. Victoria, when you play your first major concert with the symphony orchestra, I'm going to be there and I'm going to have a seat in that, in that audience. And I was like, yeah, okay, grandpa. <laughs> However, it had occurred to me when I got that first call to play with the Boston Symphony Orchestra that my grandfather was not going to, in fact, see me perform. And I got really upset. But then I remembered the piece I was playing was a major symphonic work called the Resurrection Symphony. And it is a very long Mahler symphony. It's Mahler two. The very long Mahler symphony and there is this moment in that symphony where it's just like the vocalist is singing and the orchestra supporting her and it's just such a such a big work and it takes so many ma- it takes so much musician power to pull it off and I got really emotional on stage at my first BSO concert because I felt him there I felt him watching me perform the resurrection symphony I mean, think about it. My first time playing with a major symphony orchestra, and the first piece I played is called Resurrection Symphony, and my grandfather said he would be there for my first major symphony concert. What are the chances?
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. A lovely story. Tell me about Seraph Brass and what listeners can expect.
1: So Seraph Brass is an all-female brass quintet group. We are um, actually it's six of us that make up this brass quintet, and only five of us are ever performing. So we have three trumpet players, a horn, a trombonist, which is me, and a tuba player. And we all live in different cities across the nation. And the day before a tour, we come together, we put music together for a performance. Sometimes it's a quick one-off weekend type of thing, or sometimes we have an extended tour for up to a week and a half, two weeks at a time. And a lot of the music people can expect to hear um, is we do some crazy fast pieces, which is super exciting. And a lot of the time people will come up to me afterwards and like, I didn't know a trombone slide so could move that fast. And I'm like, me neither. <laughs> and then we, and then we like to end every concert with like a little cute something. Uh, uh, it's called Hungarian Rhapsody, and it's just a fun piece that everybody has heard at some point in their lives. Whether you've seen um, Rhapsody Rabbit or um, Tom and Jerry, it's you know it's just a, a fun way to end a concert. Um, that's not a secret or anything. A lot of, we, we do that a lot. I'm the newest member of Seraph. I started playing with them in September. So this is, the whole touring life is very new to me and, and the rep that they're using, they've been playing for a while. It's, re, this rep is new to me and really exciting. We also like to represent um, a lot of female composers, uh, uh, composers of color, just trying to get the minority pool so that their music is represented.
0: What's the most challenging aspect of performing with people who are spread out across the United States?
1: Is I would say that, you know, we all have our own personal lives. You know, I, I have an active freelance life and I have an administrative job and I also help Sarah Brass administratively as well. And we all have our own niche of what we do. So a lot of us um, are, pro- are professors at universities, also freelancing. Have, some have an enormous teaching studio. Others have a major solo career. And they you know, we're all, what makes it difficult and, and fun is that because we're all so different, we all have different aspects that we can provide to the group, a lot of insight in what we can offer Sarah, for us as a whole. And I mean, it makes, it makes for fun conversation. It makes for interesting ways to try something new musically. You know, you just want to keep things fresh for an audience. And even though you've played it 30,000 times, that audience is going to hear it for the first time. So when we rehearse, we're always trying to work on something new for us so that when an audience hears it, we can pull it off and they're like, yeah, that was amazing. That's, that's the first time I've ever heard it. And we're just like, that worked. That really worked. That was the first time we've ever played it that way. You know.
0: Well, when joining a group for a new time or a symphony, how do you develop the trust? How do you let everybody know that hey, I'm here, I'm worthy of this and you guys can trust me?
1: Well, with any major ensemble, performing ensemble, you do have to take an audition. So when you take an audition and everyone's agreed that you're the clear winner and you're going to receive the job, they trust your sound. They trust your musicianship. They trust, before you open your mouth, they trust what you can provide musically. Um, I think what comes with that is your personality. How do you work? How can you contribute to the group? That's not just musically. And, I that's a lot of where, um, you know, 10, every job has like a 10 year period, even an orchestra a musician has a 10 year period. Um, so they could be fantastic players. I, I had a 10 year period for Sarah brass, very short, just a few months. Um, and it was to see how did I function on a tour? How was I useful to the group? How did I support the group? Uh, how was my communication? And there's so many aspects in the musician career. You know, you think that, communication, organization, those things come first. The musician's world is completely opposite. People want to know how you work as a musician. They want to know how you play. And if you play great and everything like that, awesome. Your second round is, are you a decent person?
0: (laughs) Well, with all the turmoil of the last year, I'm curious as to what do you feel the biggest life lesson is? Doesn't have to be music related? Just the biggest thing you've learned from the last 24 crazy months?
1: Life will go on. And You know, it was very hard for me when I was thinking about when I left the pandemic in 2020, I was playing with the Boston Lyric Opera, the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I was getting ready for my first tour with the Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra. We were going to go in the Midwest, and then I was going to go on my first international tour to Japan. And then everything stopped. Everything ended. And I kept thinking to myself for a year and a half, that's it. It's over. None of these things are ever going to come back. If they do come back, what if I'm not ready? What if, um, what if they find somebody else to call instead? What if I'm, I'm no longer the person that they want to call upon when they need a, a filler or to go on tour with? And now that I'm, I'm back, I realize that you know, something like that, that, that trust doesn't just go away the ability to show people that, yes, you can perform under the pressure or perform in the moment, that doesn't go away just because the world ended for, like, a hot second. Um, and, that's, and that's still something I'm struggling with. I've only been actively out of that dry patch of not being able to perform publicly since September, really. Um, so, And ever since September, I've had nonstop performances, either when I'm touring with Seraph going internationally touring with them or performing pops concerts, symphony concerts with multiple orchestras. It's, um, it's a nice, it's nice to be busy again. I forgot how much stamina it takes though. <laughs> the endurance behind constantly performing. Um, but to answer your question, life will go on and no people don't forget you that easily.
0: Definitely a hard lesson to learn. Cause I think many of us did the same thing so what's next as we move into the spring of 2022, what do you have? What do you have in store for us?
1: So I'm really excited. I'm going to go, um, playing Carnegie hall with the Boston symphony orchestra in March. So I'm also from long Island. So I'll go to New York city, do the concert, see my family afterwards. It'll be, it'll be like work and a reward. Uh, a lot of what we're doing with Sarah Brass is a lot more touring coming up. We have, um, we're crossing our fingers for some possible festivals in the summer. Uh, another thing that Seraph is looking forward to is that we might be going to Korea sometime in November. So that's like really South Korea, obviously. Um, <laughs> going to South Korea in November. Hopefully, we're still still working those details out. But um, a lot of what's coming up for me is ambiguous. I have auditions that I'm getting ready for that I I would like to at least meet, reach finals for, or even win the job for. So we'll we'll cross our fingers and see.
0: Well, before I let you go, you live in probably my favorite American city, one of the greatest cities in the world, Boston. So for someone who hasn't visited Boston, which there's very few, I'm guessing, but for someone who hasn't visited Boston and they're visiting for the first time, what would be your recommendation?
1: Okay. So I have a new section of Boston that I absolutely adore. Uh, Me and my husband, we own electric scooters. So we do not drive around Boston, we scooter everywhere. Obviously not now, it's absolutely cold outside. And it'll be cold until probably like beginning of April. Mm. At least at least in April it'll still be cold, but it won't hurt your face as you're driving <laughs> on a scooter. Uh, what we love to do is me and my husband love to go to the Wharf, the Sea Wharf and South End. That is such a new and upcoming place. There's new skyscrapers, new condominiums there. Amazing food, amazing restaurants, great nightlife over there. So if you're first time to Boston, you know, hit the major things like do Newberry Street, go see Fenway Park, but like go do dinner and drinks in the South End or by the Sea Wharf. It's it's a beautiful place. And also super awesome for photos because you get to see Boston and it's in its most beautiful hour.
0: Brilliant, brilliant advice. This is awesome. This has been such a fun conversation. How can people stay up to date with your life and follow along your journey?
1: So I am incredibly active on social media. I am a big Instagram person. I share everything and anything on Instagram. I, I post stories constantly and people are very amused by them. I am told often in public, Vicky, your stories are so funny. You know, I, I love watching what you do in a day. So people can follow me on Instagram at MissVickyGarcia. I'm not as active on Facebook. It's Victoria Garcia underscore Daskalava. That's my husband's last name. I hyphenated it. I'm not as active on Facebook, mainly just because, I don't know, generational tides, I guess. Uh, But everything that I post on Instagram eventually makes its way over to Facebook. But if people want to reach out to me, send me messages, uh, they can follow me on Instagram. I always respond to any message people send me. Unless it's a horrible, raunchy message, then I, then it just goes in the block and delete pile.
0: <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to videos. Once it warms up in Boston, I'm looking forward to scooter videos as well. So that's, that's one thing.
1: Oh, I post about my scooter adventures very often. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to do this. Thanks, Randall.
0: It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Hope we chat again, but thank you for today.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Much appreciation. Victoria. Wasn't she fantastic? You can give her a follow on Instagram, Miss Vicky Garcia. Everyone has a story, each person a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento.